welcome to Lighting the Pipes Noir. My name is Joshua Taylor, and this is a podcast where I investigate a selection from that dark, cynical era of classic Hollywood cinema, the era known as film noir. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Blue Dahlia. Not to be confused with the Black Dahlia, which is a famous 1947 Los Angeles homicide case. Infamous would be a better word to describe it. True crime aficionados know what I'm talking about. It's one of those unsolved whodunits that has fed the imagination of mystery writers ever since. But the Blue Dahlia is what we're talking about, and that was released in 1946 by Paramount Pictures. It starred Alan Ladd, William Bendix, and Veronica Lake. Now, Bendix was an established character actor. He was known for playing thugs and working-class citizens. And, of course, Ladd and Lake had already shared a few Paramount billings. The first being the early noir, This Gun for Hire, loosely based from a Grand Green novel with a similar name. Now, by early noir, I'm referring to any film produced after the Maltese Falcon, which is sort of the beginning of the classical period of film noir as defined by film historians. The second appearance of Ladd and Lake, going back to that, was The Glass Key, and that was released in the same year as This Gun for Hire, 1942. Already, audiences had a craving for this dynamic on-screen couple. And The Blue Dahlia was the third time that Ladd and Lake shared the screen. But Lake's star had since slightly fallen as evidence of her third billing after Bendix. And there is a reason for that. And that doesn't really have much to do with the making of The Blue Dahlia as a film, though. And I feel Lake would have played the same role in this movie had she been given the lead billing. Regardless... Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake are substantial figures in the noir era, and I will be tackling their legacies further down the road when we examine This Gun for Hire and The Glass Key. Spoilers of what's coming ahead, but yes, those are going to be covered at some point. As for The Blue Dahlia, I chose this film not because of Ladd, not because of Bendix or Lake, or because of its noir-esque aesthetic. I chose it because of the screenwriter, one Raymond Chandler. For those of you who possess even the basic knowledge of film noir, you should recognize that name. And if you don't, that's okay, because I'm about to give a crash course on the man. Allow me to digress, though. Well, not so much as to digress, but to plug our sister podcast, Lighting the Pipes, where me and Scott Powell discuss and dissect mystery novels. In our second season, we completed a survey of all seven Philip Marlowe books written by Chandler. We supplemented each episode with chronological bio tidbits of the author as well. So if you enjoyed this episode and were charmed by Chandler's screenwriting for The Blue Dahlia, I heartily recommend for you to check out our second season. In fact, shameless plug though it might be, check out all our seasons of Lighting the Pipes if you haven't already, of course. With that now said, it's time to open the case of The Blue Dahlia. Blue Dahlia, as discussed, was released by Paramount Pictures in 1946. It was produced by John Houseman and directed by George Marshall. 
The best way to describe the film, at least until we get to the summary, would be that of a murder mystery melodrama. You have the aforementioned murder, a crooked nightclub owner, an innocent man on the run, all ingredients for your typical noir, especially a noir produced in 1945, when detective fiction wasn't the only source material for this exciting new genre-slash-movement, or whatever you prefer to define it as. Because it wasn't just Hammett-inspiring filmmakers in this period. There were now such luminaries as Cornell Woolrich and James N. Kane, and last but not least, our boy Raymond Chandler. To the initiated, Chandler is considered one of the founding fathers of American detective fiction. For seven novels and several short stories, Chandler's Philip Marlowe was an errant knight in plainclothes, the polar opposite to Sam Spade, navigating a labyrinth of sun-baked boulevards, seedy nightclubs, sketchy apartment complexes, and the glorious boardwalk beachfronts of 40s and 50s Los Angeles. He built on what Dashiell Hammett had started and transformed it into hard-boiled poetry. And that, I assure you, is not hyperbole on my part. Well, maybe a little. My bias is showing. And like Hammett, Chandler found himself in the crosshairs of Hollywood. RKO was the first big studio to jump on the Chandler bandwagon. The producer, Adrian Scott, landed the rights to Chandler's second novel, Farewell My Lovely, and adapted it into Murder My Sweet. The movie starred known musical headliner Dick Powell as Marlowe, and it was a moderate success. And that's another one we discuss on the series as well. And another spoiler, we will also be doing The Big Sleep, Howard Hawks' gargantuan noirish epic of Chandler's first novel, the one with Bogey and Bacall chewing scenery like it was an all-you-can-eat buffet. But I just want to remind everyone that Dick Powell had his rod in the fire before our man Bogart did. So who is this Raymond Chandler, and how did he become so influential with film noir? To answer that, we go back to July 23, 1888, Chicago, Illinois, where Raymond Chandler was born. His early childhood was spent in Nebraska, where his alcoholic father, a railroad engineer, abandoned the family. His mother had family connections in Ireland, and an invitation was made for mother and son to live with their family. Eventually, they ended up in London, where young Chandler pursued literary studies at the prestigious Dulwich College. This was followed by a year of study in Paris. Returning to London, he had sights set on a career in literary criticism, but found little work available, and a clerical desk waiting for him instead. But he would not acquiesce, promising his uncle and benefactor that he would find work in America, as his generous uncle had put up with he and his mother for so long, he took a steamer across the Atlantic, and once in New York, a train to the West. So now in his early 20s, he found himself in Dashiell Hammett's old stomping grounds, San Francisco. Hammett had once been a Pinkerton and took up a job as an advertiser in Frisco. So Chandler, in the same direction, got a line on selling sports equipment. All of that was a bust. And so he headed to Los Angeles, where his destiny awaited him. In L.A., he put behind any literary aspirations. He utilized previously made connections to get a high-paying job with Big Oil. Now, for those not in the know, the three pillars of power and influence in Los Angeles, which you will very much learn from Raymond Chandler, was water, Hollywood, and oil. Less on the latter, as the old derricks were drying up very fast. Chandler worked himself up to an executive position at one of the biggest oil companies, but was later fired for his perpetual womanizing and perpetual inebriation. Again, like Hammett, he found economic subsistence in writing. And also like Hammett, he began writing for Black Mask magazine, that pulp tome publication in which amateurs and nascent novelists cut their teeth with detective fiction. It was sensationalist stuff most of the time, getting the behinds of the adolescents caught reading it paddled for its glorification of sex, violence, and general amorality. 
you think this would be an issue for the puritanically raised Chandler, but he needed money. Domestic bliss between he and his significantly older wife, Sissy, was also maintained through the new source of income, as well as the work involved, for it kept him sober and away from the womanizing. Win-win. So with this black mask gig, Chandler churned out short stories by the dozen. He would use the basic outlines of these stories and stitch them together to complete his novels, the first being The Big Sleep in 1938. Now the money started to roll in. Chandler's creation, Philip Marlowe, provided a refreshing alternative to his detective forebears. Marlowe was chivalrous. He was a philosopher and possessed a skewed but defined moral code. All Noir's key attributes and tropes, though in a way Chandler helped define those tropes, could be found in the Marlowe novels. Femme fatales, blackmail, political and police corruption, nihilism, alcoholism, smoking, oh dear God, and overall world wariness. These caught on, and as mentioned above, like all detective heroes, Hollywood came knocking. And it wasn't just the IP rights they wanted out of Raymond Chandler. They also wanted to pick his brain. Enter Billy Wilder, the Austrian-born Samuel Wilder, Billy to his friends, and everlasting fame in film history, was a Berlin-based screenwriter until the Nazis came goose-stepping into power in 1933. They didn't care much for his Jewish background, so he, like many others, fled to America and Hollywood. He moved his way up through the writer galleys. In 1939, the film of which he co-wrote, Nanachka, was nominated for an Academy Award, this occurring just after The Big Sleep was published. It appears Wilder and Chandler on some same trajectory. Jumping ahead to 1942-43, Wilder had a new project, and coincidentally, he loved detective fiction. And he loved Chandler. At least until he met the man, anyway. This new project was an adaptation of James N. Cain's popular novel, Double Indemnity, and Wilder believed Raymond Chandler was the man to help Wilder pull it off. The problem was the Hayes Office, a.k.a. the Motion Picture Production Code of America. This sensorial, influential force in the industry would not get down with a film about an insurance salesman who has an affair with one of his customers and is seduced, borderline blackmailed, into killing her husband. And that's not even speaking of the sex involved. Wilder thought Chandler could translate Kane's darker, raunchier elements into subtext so the story's key elements could be preserved whilst playing it safe with the censors. The Hayes office could kill a film just like that. But the witty Chandler eluded them, despite the toxic dynamic that he and Wilder had developed. Chandler wasn't pleased with how screenwriters were looked upon by the studio. Virtual factory workers churned out yarns for the Hollywood dream machine. Walter's enthusiasm to work with Chandler soon evaporated. Chandler had a prudish nature despite his own vices and didn't enjoy to see Wilder going after every pretty thing in the studio. Contempt or jealousy, maybe a bit of both. And Chandler, when he wasn't drinking, was crotchety and difficult to get along with. The two writers grew to dislike each other immensely. Despite all of this friction, Double Indemnity was a hit and added a new layer to the noir onion, the shattering of the illusion of the peaceful American suburb. It was also Wilder's directorial debut, and he would go on to direct classics like The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, and The Apartment. Chandler would continue to write Marlowe, and to his chagrin, more screenplays. And Now Tomorrow and The Unseen are two such examples. But these were adaptations. By 1945, Chandler was working on his next book, and this time it would not be a Philip Marlowe tale. This manuscript, only half completed, would become The Blue Dahlia. Time for another figure in the Blue Dahlia story to enter the ring, its producer, John Houseman. 
In his time at Paramount, Chandler had picked up acquaintances in the industry. John Houseman was one of those people. He had produced The Unseen, which Chandler co-wrote. The Romanian-born British and American-raised Houseman was an actor, director, and producer. Despite his Englishness, Houseman made his mark on the American stage, where he met Orson Welles and collaborated with that titan of storytelling in a theater troupe called the Federal Theater Project. Once Wells had reached the cusp of his stardom with the production of Citizen Kane, Houseman and he would soon part ways. Citizen Kane was co-written by Wells and Herman Mankiewicz, and Houseman had fought on Mank's behalf to have billing for, for Mankiewicz as co-writer on the film. The egotistical Wells would not have this, but Houseman stepped in to ensure that this would happen. Wells was furious, and so ended that friendship. Houseman moved past Wells' histrionics and became VP of David O. Selznick Productions, the very same David Selznick who produced Gone with the Wind. In the vein of that skirt-twirling classic, Houseman produced an adaptation of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. As an aside, we can't look away from Houseman's contributions to the wider world of noir. In 1948, Houseman went over to RKO and produced the first film of director Nicholas Ray, They Live by Night, another prestigious addition to the noir canon. He also directed A Lonely Place, starring Humphrey Bogart. But returning to the early 1940s, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, Houseman quit Selznick and became head of the Overseas Radio Division of the Office of Information. Houseman had joined the ranks of Jimmy Stewart, John Ford, and Alan Ladd. Ladd, who became an overnight star in this gun for hire, had followed that success with The Glass Key and the pictures that followed. However, in 1943... January, to be precise, he was inducted into the U.S. Army. Ladd served until October of that same year until influenza and a stomach ailment reared its ugly head. Ladd was honorably discharged and following a convalescence was available for a limited time on the Paramount backlot. I will point out that his service was essentially being available for propaganda films and not working a general big studio Hollywood production. Going back to Houseman, he was also released from service, and by 1945, he had signed a contract as a producer for Paramount Pictures. Houseman knew that the army would be calling Ladd back to duty very soon. The war in Europe may have been winding down, but the Pacific Theater was threatening to last even longer. They needed to get a picture in production as soon as possible. Because of their collaboration on The Unseen, Houseman sought out Raymond Chandler for ideas. It turned out... Chandler was working on the Blue Dahlia manuscript as his next novel, but was having difficulty getting it off the ground. He felt it had more legs as a screenplay. Houseman read all 120 pages that Chandler had written, and he now found the ideal project for Ladd, one he could shoot before the U.S. Army snatched him away. Chandler, Houseman, and Ladd all converging onto the same path. The manuscript was purchased within 48 hours with Houseman producing. Six weeks later, Chandler had wrote the first half of the screenplay and submitted it to Paramount. In light of the short window of time they had with Ladd, things got moving quickly. Shooting was but three weeks away. George Marshall, known for his early sound comedies of 20th Century Fox, the Laurel and Hardy films being the most prominent of his work, was a veteran who knew how to crank out productions quickly and within budget. No wonder he was hired as director. This was not good news for the persnickety Chandler, who, if we go back to his chaotic collaboration with Billy Wilder on Double Indemnity, preferred, among many preferences, to work at his own pace. But Houseman was confident that his friend Chandler would be able to keep up with the efficient Marshall. In terms of the casting, this was assured when the film was announced. Alan Ladd was secured as the lead, playing Johnny Morrison, followed by William Bendix as Buzz Wanchek, and Veronica Lake as Joyce Harwood. 
Rounding out the cast was Howard De Silva as Eddie Harwood, Doris Dowling as Helen Morrison, Hugh Beaumont as George Copeland, Don Costello as Corelli, and Will Wright as Dad Newell. Like George Marshall, cinematographer Lyle Linden came from a comedy background and had the same journeyman technique as the director. Four weeks went by and only additional 62 pages had been written and Marshall was already beginning to catch up to Chandler for the scenes he had shot. This time it wasn't the Hayes office cocking up the operation. The U.S. Navy was not pleased to hear that a serviceman would be revealed as the murderer of the story. The slight spoiler aside, and I mean three characters are servicemen so it could be either of them, the Pacific Theater was heating up immensely, and the optics of a Navy man being the culprit was not good. It's apparent that Chandler wanted to examine war trauma and PTSD in this particular story, but the Navy would have none of it. The ending had to be changed, and Chandler had to find another perp. Paramount even offered him an additional 5000 to complete the screenplay, including an alteration of the ending. Despite the extra money, he realized that his gesture conveyed that the studio had no faith in him and that his literary ambitions towards the story were to be tossed away in exchange for a pedestrian ending. This was Houseman's own interpretation of the situation, reflecting upon it years later. Chandler slept on the deal and then accepted the five grand, but he had a few conditions. First, going against the prohibition on his contract, he would be allowed to start drinking again. He required two Cadillac limousines to stand by his house with drivers at his beck and call. He also requested six secretaries and a direct line to the studio that he could use day and night. Finally, he demanded nurses for his ailing wife as writing in an intoxicated state would prevent him from looking after her. Paramount agreed. The demon unleashed, so to speak, Chandler opened his bottle of bourbon and pounded away at the final half of the screenplay. Marshall zipped along at an alarming rate. The requested limousines arrived on the set each day of the production, the drivers passing along additional pages of script as Chandler pushed through in a haze of constant inebriation. In the end, he won the unofficial race between he and Marshall, completing the script on time, but just barely. Billy Wilder, Alfred Hitchcock are two colossi of the film industry that Chandler famously did not get along with. Add Veronica Lake to that list, or as Chandler called her, Veronica Lake. Lake evidently had not heard of Raymond Chandler, a fact that infuriated him, especially when Lake conveyed she was more than aware of his work in the studio pressers that followed the release of the film. He also did not think she was a good actress. I should say by this time, Lake had already begun her descent into alcoholism and had a reputation for being difficult, a behavior that was clarified to be related to mental illness in her later life. Perhaps Chandler saw too much of his own flaws in Lake. I don't know. But... Hers was an interesting life, and that's a story for another day. Ditto Alan Ladd. We know that he was not happy with the casting of Doris Dowling as the ill-fated wife of Ladd's Johnny Morrison. Ladd was 5'6 and significantly shorter than Dowling. Marshall and DOP Lionel Linden used the camera work and the editing to hide this distinction. Ladd was considered short for the industry, and Lake at 4'9 was a good partner for him. The big joke was that all the trepidation that was not necessary as the army announced in May 1945 that they no longer required anyone 30 or over to enlist. Ladd would not be heading to the Pacific. Probably a good thing. In the end, the Blue Dahlia met great box office, even more so in England. The critics were also satisfied. Now does this assessment of the film hold up? More on that later. But before we get into the review, which will be presented in a fashion slightly different than what we've had previously, here is the plot summary. There be spoilers beyond this point, so listeners beware. 
If you haven't seen the film, my advice is to pause this podcast here and now and watch the film. Once you've done that, come back to this exact section and enjoy my summary and review. Their tour of duty in the Pacific having come to an end, USAF bomber pilot Johnny Morrison and his wingmates Buzz Wanchik and George Copeland have returned to Los Angeles. Johnny is the captain, George Copeland was a lawyer before the war, and Buzz, well, Buzz has a plate in his head and a lot of PTSD to go with it. Immediately upon disembarking the bus, the trio stop off at a watering hole for a wee dram, only to be interrupted when a GI starts blaring the establishment's jukebox, triggering Buzz's migraines. Buzz flies into a rage, but cooler heads, mainly Johnny and George, prevail. After Buzz and George contemplate looking for an apartment, Johnny heads home. Home is a rented bungalow in the swanky Cavendish Court, where Johnny finds a party waiting for him. Well, not exactly for him. His wife Helen is throwing it, and she is just as surprised to see him as he is seeing her hosting this brouhaha. He is not finished even unpacking his single suitcase when he catches Helen kissing one Eddie Harwood, the owner of the titular nightclub, the Blue Dahlia. Johnny slaps Harwood, who shamelessly yet apologetically scampers off. Helen ends the party, and the two have a nasty row. In the midst of this, the house detective of Cavendish Court, one Dad Newell, knocks on the door with a warning about the racket coming from the house. Johnny tells Newell where to go and returns to the lively debate with Helen. It is revealed that their son, whom he believed died of diphtheria years earlier, actually died in a drunken car crash, Helen being the one behind the wheel. Raging in the bedroom, Johnny opens his suitcase to reveal a pistol. He notices a framed portrait of his son on the bedside table, packs it, and with gun in hand, confronts Helen. He all but shoots her in that moment, and drops the gun in the armchair as he walks out into the rain. Shortly after, Helen calls the number belonging to George and Buzz, whom Johnny had taken down before. They lined up an apartment mighty quick, didn't they? Buzz answers the phone. He's concerned about Johnny walking out. He walks out without telling his roommate George. Helen calls Eddie Harwood, but Eddie is in his office at the Blue Dahlia with his right-hand man, Leo, who is currently lecturing Eddie about how dangerous Helen is to their operation and is relieved that her husband has returned. Eddie tells Helen that it's over, using the excuse that he finds Johnny a good guy, quote-unquote. How noble. Furious at this rebuff, Helen hits the bar at Cavendish Court's main building. Buzz shows up and sits next to her, both of them unaware as to who the other is. Helen invites Buzz back to her place. Meanwhile, Johnny is on the strip. He passes the Blue Dahlia, with only his raincoat and his hat protecting him from the downpour. And it just so happens that Eddie Harwood's estranged wife, Joyce, introduced only in a pan and zoom to a portrait, as Leo espoused her virtue as seen earlier, is driving by and offers Johnny a ride. People were more trusting back then, I guess. We learn Joyce is heading to Malibu to see some friends and Johnny needs to go somewhere. Road trip, the two meet cute along the way, meet cute to the extent that Johnny gives Joyce a fake name. But it is early in the relationship. Meanwhile, back at the court, Dad Newell notices someone showing up at the back gate of the Morrison bungalow. It could be Eddie Harwood, who only a scene or two ago, Helen called to come over. On the way to Malibu, Joyce pulls into a seaside motor inn, and I will say that is too swanky to call it a motel. Joyce only needs to make a phone call to her friends in Malibu that she'll be late, but Johnny decides to take his leave. It's a bitter parting in the parking lot. Things start getting interesting, though, at Cavendish Court when the maid finds Helen Morrison dead on her couch. Johnny's pistol is on the floor. The court manager is called in, as is Dad Newell. 
The police are contacted. A Captain Hendrickson is running the investigation. All evidence points to the missing party, the husband, Johnny Morrison. Buzz and George are interviewed, as is Harwood and Newell. Meanwhile, Johnny is having a pleasant morning. Whilst breaking his fast at the Motor Inn's seaside patio, he finds Joyce sitting nearby. Johnny opens up, prompting Joyce to invite him for a walk on the beach. One can't blame Johnny for accepting. Unfortunately, the radio is blaring in the lobby that a man of his description is being hunted by the police. Johnny hightails it, throwing his coat and cap in a charity bin as Joyce observes from above. He boards the nearest bus, which takes him back to Los Angeles. He needs to find a place to stay so he can lay low, but is unable to find a vacancy downtown. An observant hoodlum trails him from the bus station to the various hotel attempts and offers him a ride to a nearby flophouse. Out of options, Johnny acquiesces. He's able to sign the ledger at the desk manned by a shady character called Corelli. The two hoods gouge him for money, but luckily for Johnny, a copper shows up inquiring about the stolen car outside. Johnny trips one of the thugs as they panic, and the policemen arrest them both. Johnny tells the cop he's from San Francisco, and the cop pays him no mind. Corelli takes him to his room. When Johnny asks to use the phone to call George and Buzz in the hall, Corelli eavesdrops. A cop answers the phone. Johnny hangs up. Dad Newell pays a visit to Eddie Harwood's penthouse via breaking in through the fire escape. Harwood is nonchalant, offering a drink and a cigar as Newell tries to flex him. Newell is ousted. The hack girl at Cavendish Court, Captain Hendrickson, Harwood, no one seems to like Dad Newell. Harwood is not so nonchalant when Joyce shows up at his apartment. Joyce, however, might be too nonchalant. Johnny arrives at the lobby of Eddie Harwood's building. Joyce spots him as she emerges from the elevator just as Captain Hendrickson and his second arrive. Joyce calls her front desk from the mezzanine to tip Johnny off. They meet at her car outside, and Johnny is reluctant to seek her help. When he returns to Corelli's place, Corelli confronts him about who he actually is. He finds the portrait of his son and tries to shake Johnny down. Corelli pulls out a gun but is jumped by Johnny. They struggle and Corelli is bludgeoned unconscious. The glass of the portrait is shattered. Removing the shards, Johnny pulls out the photograph and notices something on the back. A letter from Helen. About Eddie Harwood. Johnny leaves the hotel and shows up at George and Buzz's apartment. They try to convince him to turn himself in. Johnny realizes it's the right decision and leaves but a cop is waiting outside wielding a badge and Johnny goes along with it. What Johnny doesn't know is that after Corelli regained consciousness, he contacted Leo, Eddie's gangster partner slash co-owner of the Blue Dahlia. Johnny finds himself in a car with a fake badge and Leo behind the wheel. They bring Johnny to an abandoned house, but Johnny refuses to be their captor. He's eventually incapacitated and tied up, but not before breaking Leo's foot. The fake cop searches Johnny's prostrate form and finds the photo with the info about Eddie Harwood on the reverse side. Leo reads it and then takes out the sidekick. Eddie Hardwood is at the Blue Dahlia with Joyce when Buzz and George show up. Eddie is willing to see them but gets a call from Leo and invites him to wait in his office after excusing himself. Joyce enters the office and introduces herself to George and Buzz. Absently, she pulls at the leaves on one of the Blue Dahlias in the office, all the while the band music blares in the background. Buzz undergoes another terrible headache, yelling at Joyce to stop picking at the leaves. Johnny awakens and frees himself from the rope. He takes on Leo and knocks him out. Eddie then shows up, but Johnny's got a gun. Eddie bitterly confesses he killed a messenger back in New Jersey and has been hiding out in Los Angeles ever since. Helen knew this. It's all in the note. Unfortunately, Leo revives and attempts to grab Johnny's gun. The gun fires once and then twice. One bullet for Eddie and then another for Leo. Accidentally, of course. Both are killed. Johnny shows up at the Blue Dahlia. Eddie's office is now occupied by Joyce, George, Buzz, Hendrickson, Hendrickson's second, and Dad Newell. 
Buzz has confessed to killing Helen, but Johnny knows this is not true. It can't be true. Johnny tries to demonstrate how disciplined and in control Buzz is in, in combat by holding up a lit match and having Buzz take a shot at it. Buzz snuffs this match out in one shot. He remembers leaving Helen alive in the bungalow, but Hendrickson got it all figured out anyway. Dad Newell in his sketchy profession is someone with the means and the will for blackmail. He accuses Newell of blackmailing Helen Morrison after Harwood left, and when she didn't play ball, he shot her. Newell tries to escape instead of pleading innocence, but there are cops behind the door. He tries to pull a gun on Hendrickson and is shot dead before he can get a round off. Newell rightfully takes the rap, Johnny is vindicated, George and Buzz head for a drink, and Johnny and Joyce contemplate a future. And that's the plot summary for The Blue Dahlia. I did warn there would be spoilers. Now on to the review. I did not have a formal essay to present as my review for The Blue Dahlia. I expanded the scoring section of the review by bringing in a guest co-reviewer instead. In this upcoming section, you'll hear me refer to a review and a formal review, I believe once or twice, but I cut the formal review, so please just ignore those instances. So that's the formal review of The Blue Dahlia. So something different uh, this time around. I have a special guest, faithful listeners of Lighting the Pipes Noir. Uh, this is my buddy, my cousin, uh, my co-host mm-hmm. on Lighting the Pipes, Scott Powell. And because we covered the works of Raymond Chandler on the second season of Lighting the Pipes, I thought it would be fun to invite him to provide his own review of The Blue Dahlia. So let's see what he has to say about Chandler's original screenplay. Mm. (laughs) I've entered the building. All right. So a little different from Lighting the Pipes, Scott, uh, where we have our pipes, our principles, our investigation, our perpetrators, our environs, and our supporting cast. I just have a three-part rating system, and that's going to be plot out of five, performance out of five, and atmosphere out of five. That, mm-hmm. that brings us to a total of 15 per film. So that's how we're going to be rating the Blue Dahlia. So we'll Got discuss uh, the highlights and lowlights of each of those categories and present our, our ratings. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds fair to me. Uh, it's fun to just kind of come along this journey with you because as you outlined, we did do the Chandler stories together in our second season of Pipes. So yeah, thanks Josh for uh, inviting me on here to give you my thoughts of The Blue Dahlia. Uh, you want me to just to break into it? Yeah, let's go right for the plot. Let's talk about the narrative itself, the investigation, the, I guess, the, the directing, uh, the pacing, the editing, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, Um well, you know, from my point of view, uh, I kind of felt this one was a bit boring. I wasn't enamored by it. Um, I liked the script. I got to be honest with you. I did find some Chandlerian moments in there for sure. There were some really there, yeah. interesting interesting quips, like some good dialogue. You know, particularly, I, I marked a couple of points here. Like when uh, John's talking to Joyce and he says to her, you know... Um, this is goodbye and goodbyes are tough. And she's like, why is it tough to say goodbye? You've never seen me before tonight. And, and Johnny says, well, every guy seen you before. The trick is to find you. Like, I like that. That's a very Marlowian type of line, you know? Um, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I so can see Marlowe getting along yeah. with Joyce pretty well. 
Uh, so those are in there for sure. And and also like when he says, how often do they change the fleas? You know, like when he when he gets into the hotel or to their hired room because <laughs> he's thinking the place is pretty dingy, right? Like there's little things like that that you can tell have got the Chandler yes. touch. But um, the, the story is okay. I mean, I, I, there's some good dialogue in here, like I say, and I like the Helen angle uh, with Eddie. I thought that that was, that was good. But Joyce to me was a non-entity. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. she's a stunning, stunning actor, and she's a very attractive woman. But in part of the story, there was no depth at all to her. She's just a pretty face, I felt, and really only had a few key scenes. Didn't do much for me in terms of, like, nothing like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. I mean, there's just no no, no gravity like that. Different, ca- so, very yeah. different character, though, of course, at the same of time. Yeah, yeah. But in trying to keep with the, kind of the, the tropes as you've outlined them here on the sideshow for everyone on uh, Noir, then I, I just kind of felt like it was, meh, it was okay. It was entertaining. She's but the good it, girl. It wasn't She's, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I went, I went I, three I out of five. I definitely agree about three out of five. Okay. That's, um, yeah, that's exactly what I gave it. I found that okay. like I loved individual scenes in this film really shine in terms of of writing and dialogue like they shine really well mm-hmm. and how they're set up but i find that there's like you know they don't connect the, the pacing is very much like a chandler novel it's almost glacial mm-hmm. you know like how they're almost like scattered out throughout and then he just leads up mm-hmm. to this moment mm-hmm. but you see that doesn't work for a film in my opinion you got to be like you got to mm-hmm. go with the traditional like standard Hollywood continuity, you have to follow those mm-hmm. rules, you know? And it just, the problem, like if you think about it, the story doesn't really kick into gear until about 35 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Helen has mm-hmm. to die in order for the story to kick into gear. They set everything yeah. up. There's so many Shekhov's guns loaded and hung up on the wall in the first 35 mm-hmm. minutes. But, you know, realistically, in terms of a motion picture, I think in order to keep up with the pacing and keep the audience interested, you have to mm-hmm. dial mm-hmm. that back a bit. Like maybe mm-hmm. have the first 15 minutes to be a, be the setup and then get into it. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's just say, for example, the 35 minutes, they do work in a way. Like the first 35 minutes, they do work leading up to the murder. But then let's go to what happens after that. That's when you have to speed up the story. That's when you make things suspenseful. But it just seems like they're just jumping back from different characters that they weren't. It was just jumping back and forth from different characters that you had no sense of urgency to the situation. Like even though we know Johnny is on the run, there was never a sense of like, no, he's never really, him. really. Yeah. There's never, there's never that that intensity that you would expect. He's not like a mouse being chased. There's no pursuit feel to this. It's just kind of like watching him move about and see how he gets from A to B. Uh, and that's why I think the violence is a little bit like air out of the balloon too. It comes quickly. Yeah. It goes, it goes quickly, and it doesn't really amount to much until, of course, gunshots are fired, and then it amounts to something. But yeah. In terms of the story, man, I just felt it was kind of pedestrian, but I I like the writing. Like, there are good lines here. And I'm not just saying that because I was paying more attention to the script. I was paying attention to the script, but I'm not just picking it out because, oh, I want to find those Marlowisms, you know? I'm picking it out because I truly believe that that's the best thing about the film. Um, The performances were okay. We'll get to that in a moment. But, like, Mm -hmm. the character of Dad Newell... Like, you know, the guy who ultimately does, does it, the big perpetrator, right? Like, mm-hmm. he he moves around a bit like a sly fox, um, but 
I don't it's know. still a shock that, he, that they reveal that he was the killer in the end. It's it's, just, yeah, it's very jarring. I don't care. The, like, the, I don't care. Like, I mentioned before we were talking about the Blue Dahlia just mm-hmm. in terms of Chandler's career in the past. And I did mention that this was not the ending that Chandler wanted. He That's wanted right. Buzz yeah. to be the mm-hmm. killer. Mm-hmm. And it makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense and gives a more poignant ending if it was, bu- mm-hmm. if it was Buzz. Because mm-hmm. then you're dealing with veterans issues. You're dealing with mental illness. Uh, Buzz is, is a... PTSD. Is a, is a, yeah. PTSD and Buzz, played by Bendix, is a very, like, it's a very full-blooded character mm-hmm. in, in in this film. You know, like you sympathize mm-hmm. with Buzz. Um, yeah, you you're, do. You're yeah. kind of worried. You're, you're worried about him. Uh, mm-hmm. You 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 like him despite the way that he acts. And so to, mm-hmm. him, to him to be like the perpetrator in the end, I think that would have been a, a an emotional blow, but it would have probably made the movie a lot stronger. But the thing mm-hmm. is, is that you can tell that after they decided to change the ending because. The Navy says we can't have a serviceman be a killer, so they had to change right. that yeah. at the last minute, totally, right? and yeah. put Chandler through yeah. hell because of it. That it just kind of it lets the air out, it lets the air out of the sail, you know, like mm-hmm. it, yeah, uh, because they cram, well, okay, they cram a different killer inside, and that's like, meh. yeah, like to like to me, Newell is a character you would see in a Chandler novel, one hundred percent, Dad Newell. Oh, totally. You would see that yeah. guy sl- yeah. being being a sly fox, and he would get some sort of comeuppance or something, but it was it wasn't mm-hmm. integral to the overall story. You know what I mean? No, it was just no, it would much just like advance Eddie, the plot. You know, much like Eddie, the Eddie you get in The Big Sleep is kind of similar to the Eddie you got here. He's almost a cookie cutter character. You know, club owner. Yes, we, he's a red, he's a red herring. You know, because although Eddie. Myers is a bad guy in the big sleep. He's not the big bad. He's just a dude that kind of is on the fringe, right? He's trying to take care of his own secrets. Yeah, that's totally true. And if you think about how Eddie Myers was betrayed in the Howard Hawks film, they make mm-hmm. him the big bad mm-hmm. of the Howard Hawks film. And yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like we're getting a, a true filmic interpretation of Eddie mm-hmm. Myers in here with the betrayal, mm-hmm. you know, of of of, uh, of of Eddie Harwood in this. So yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah, it's, it's cool, but but again, he doesn't really. He he's a red herring. He's a red herring. They set up the uh, yeah, the idea totally that you know herring. that he's not yeah. who he says he is. He's connect, he's connected to the past, but he's mm-hmm. still a red herring. And again, yeah. yeah, it's are we entertained by the reveal and the ending in the plot? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Just to some issues I also had in the plot uh, that I'll just touch on. Just this idea of coincidence, you know, like I mean that happens in any kind of film, obviously, but sure. the very yeah. fact that like Eddie Harwood's wife is driving by seeing johnny walking on the street yeah and she pulls i know him up it's, and yeah. offers him a ride like because th- plot that's coincidence yeah. i guess they're trying to establish ki- or trying to establish kismet or fate you could argue but i don't know that's that's going to someplace um and then of course like stuff that happens seems like they just got to happen because it's a noir it's a crime in a story so we got to have johnny captured by leo and the other guy and brought back mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. uh, abandoned house and stuff yeah, and the city hardwood gets his comeuppance mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but what really got me and was just the fact that and i and i, I kind of touch i touch on this in the review obviously but mm-hmm. for the sake of our conversation i'll just go to it and see what you think about it is that joyce could have confirmed with the police that johnny was with her you know, like, and he would have had an alibi. Oh, absolutely, like, absolutely. That could, yeah. that you know, that is one big plot hole there. And I'm wondering if, if again, like, we don't know what Chandler's original ideas were for the last half of this film because he had to change mm-hmm. so much. So, yeah, it, it's yeah. It, it's hard. No, that's it, true. It's hard to say. Yeah, because he had to make but, make it work I, so that someone else was the killer. 
Yeah, and I wonder if uh, maybe in Chandler's original treatment, and this is maybe fan service here on my part, but I wonder if if Chandler didn't have the idea of her with withholding that information because she didn't want to somehow incriminate herself. That would have made her a more complex character. And I can see in the novel how that sort of thread might be untangled a little bit. But for the film, it just sort of falls flat because it's a plot hole that stands out there, you know, information she could have saved a lot of people time with, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. We'll get into the, to the performances. I guess we can talk about the characters a little bit there. Uh, but I just want to point out, too, that, you know, the writing and direction of Buzz, I think it was handled very tastefully in this film. So this is one of the highlights that I give to the plot of the Blue Dahlia was how the writing was handled his situation very tastefully in regard to his mental mm-hmm. issues and war trauma. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they yeah. did a good, they did a good, they, they, could, they, they kind of made him sort of like, the supposed O for comic relief, but they never went to the mm-hmm. O f- direct quite over to the O f direction. Oh no, 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 you, you no. know they didn't do that. Like no, they didn't do yeah. that. He had he had some nobility, uh, and also I think um, this might be George Marshall too. You know, wanting to put that spin on it, wanting to direct it in such a way as to show a more progressive for the time, progressive sympathy towards servicemen and women, you know, trying to appeal to the sense of humanity and mental health. So I agree with you there. Yeah, I think he and the performance was good. It was one of the one of the best performances in the film, I felt was that um, if you're happy to to Mm -hmm. use that now as a transition into the performances, and I'll I'll tell you what I thought real quick. One more thing I wanted to touch on about Chandler, we know about how he portrays law enforcement and in general, like public figures. And I found it really interesting how like we have so many Chandler books we read always has uh, almost like a lot of asshole police detect uh, police captains and authority figures in his books, right? A lot of corrupt ones, a lot of violent ones who, you know, just a lot of sadists, you know? So I found Captain Hendrickson mm-hmm. and yeah. the portrayal of, of this honest police captain, that was very refreshing. And I think there was one instance, I think, in The Long Goodbye that there was a really good police captain, if I recall. Oh, yeah? Um, I forget cool. his name now, but he was the one, I think he was the yeah. Latino one that mm-hmm. was like in, in the last half of uh, the, the Long Goodbye. But he, that was an example of a, of, a, of, a, of a good guy portrayal of someone in, in a place of authority. And I thought Hendrickson was, you know, he, he was definitely level-headed. So that also... By contrast, though, it's him being the way that he was and not being like a sadist mm-hmm. or being like, I'm going to get my man and we're going to gun him down and all this sort of stuff. That also robs some suspense from an urgency from the story, though. So because we already knew that this guy was we saw scenes of him treating Newell uh, like crap and we saw him treating Harwood impartially. So we know we knew this guy wasn't impressed by people with money or with power or, you know, this guy was a straight shooter. And we know that Morrison's a straight shooter, so obviously they're going to somehow come to a head and they're going to see themselves, you know, as equals. So we kind of, so again, that kind of robs the urgency out of it. But that's the plot. We, we went through all that, so thank you for giving me your points on that. So we'll go talk about Buzz. I guess we can go into the performances here. Uh, if you want to talk about uh, William Bendix's performance, uh, you, can, you can start that out. Well, just that. I think he was really, really good. And although the character of George, who played George again? Uh, Hugh Beaumont. And do you recognize him at all? I did recognize him. What's he from? He is best known as playing Ward Cleaver in the TV series Leave Mm. it to Beaver. Nice one. Yeah, He was the dad. Nice one. Okay, cool, cool, cool. 
Well, I thought he was. I thought he was good. I know he had a limited role. He had to play the straight man everywhere he went. But I thought he did well. He was kind of a, a you know, he was he was consistent in that yes. way. And I felt I felt Eddie was another really good performance. I found George Buzz and Eddie were the best actors in the in the show. Howard um, Silva. Whereas I felt. Yeah, I really liked I liked yeah. his performance. I thought he was good. I thought he delivered the lines really well too, like where he was talking to Dan and he said, yes. you know, cigars the- go out, cigars go out awful easy, don't they, Dan?" Like that's all he said, just threatening him when his cigar dropped out. You know, I liked that. I thought that was cool. Um so I liked him. Yeah, he has a smooth casual villainy to him. Mm, very much so, yeah. Um and I felt in terms of the bad performances, and I'm afraid I I felt like I have to use this word. I thought Helen, uh, the actor who played Helen at the start, was really over the top, like really over the top, silly, ju- silly over the top during that party, like yeah, you know, hyper hyperbolic almost. I felt the police captain, I uh, can't remember his name, but you just mentioned him a minute ago. I thought he was pretty poor. I thought he was kind of dull. And Joyce, even like yeah, Veronica Lake is a great actor. I know that she grew into a lot of roles. And she's obviously stunning, but I didn't think she performed much. I mean, her looks did the performance for her. I felt that Helen, the police captain, and Joyce were all just kind of dull and leaning to the the poor in terms of performance. Like, you could really see the stagecraft that she was chewing on her lines, really trying to emote. And I felt that was a bit forceful for the for the noir. And I know that there's that sort of aesthetic where you you kind of put on your emotion and and your, uh, your, your depth a bit, but... Uh, I just felt the the acting was mediocre on on balance, but George Buzz and Eddie were good. Helen, the captain, and Joyce were mm, kind of bad in my books. I didn't think they were too good. Uh, And everyone else is just kind of ephemeral, really. Alan Ladd's performance was... I know he's playing the everyman, but he's not an everyman that I think really gets sympathy for him. And I also feel like that's the direction... He didn't have close-ups. He didn't have a lot of emoting to do. The style of this film is not one that lends itself to interpreting the characters emotionally, I don't think. Uh, And for that reason, got the acting. I gave gave it a 2.5. Like, I I just kind of felt, meh, it was all right. But acting was not the strong suit here. So far, so far, the dialogue (laughs) is the strong suit. Yeah. Yeah, I gave the performances three. Um... In regard to like the the performances, so I found Alan Ladd as Morrison, like he was likable and he's, they try to make him easy to sympathize with, but I felt that he should have been way more upset about his wife's death. I mean, it's clear the audience at the time, or we're supposed to, with the audience at the time, we're supposed to agree with him that she's a Jezebel, mm. that she lied about their son being dead. But that seemed a lot of mm-hmm. melodrama that they just had to deal with mm-hmm. in the storyline. And, and like, and you know, like, and the thing is, I found Lad was the best, actually. Like, yeah, him and, like, he, I, I think just what make, like, for example, like, him and Lake are known to be a famous pairing. But in this film, yes. like, I felt they, they were just going through the motions on this one. Like, they were good well, they together. They barely had individual scenes. scenes. They barely had when, any scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, their best scenes were, to me, like, when they're driving in the car and then when they're at the, at the, di- at the dinner. But when they're separate, like, when they have scenes with other actors, like, uh, Lake, for example, she is, yeah. she has no agency, you know, like she's, she's, she's no. likable, but there's, there's no agency for her. There's no way, there's no direction for her to go. And even, and even when she sees Eddie, like she doesn't show any kind of anger or frustration or any sort of mm-hmm. uh, cold shoulder 
to him at all. She's just like, hi, Eddie, I'm your ex-wife. We're, we, we hate each other right now or, or whatever, but I'm not yeah, really Why does she even show up? Like To convey that. Why does she even yeah. show up in his apartment? I didn't even understand why she was there. There was no need for her to be there. She didn't impart any information. She just walked through yeah. to force a bit of tension when she saw um, Morrison. But, you know, Johnny... I don't know. It just it just seemed weird to me why they even put her there, or why Chandler or whoever decided to do the right put her there. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's not like, a movie I'm going to watch again for its the... acting. That's that's I'm not going to do that. Definitely true. Definitely true. Yeah. So like there was some. Yeah, I would say William Bendix's buzz. I liked Hugh Beaumont as George, um, and Howard De Silva as Eddie Hardwood. As I said, he has like this casualness to him, and uh, he reads off the Chandlerian line so well. Like he just as if to the manner born, you know. Like he just fits that yeah. world so well. Yeah. Like even like when he scenes where he's like he's where like just think of the scene when he gets a phone call from Helen, and mm-hmm. he's so like. No, I think he's a good guy, you know, like mm-hmm. he's so casual that he's believable even when he's sort of lying. You know what I mean? Like it's he doesn't come off as slimy, but, you know, there's something shady about him, but you yeah. can't quite pick the surface. And the actor is conveying that subtlety. So he was well directed there or at least well written. Um, but uh, I don't both. know how much. Maybe both. Maybe both. I don't know. How, I don't know. We know for a fact that. Chandler did not like Veronica Lake as an actress, so maybe he sabotaged her agency in the story in the in the, in the second half, or maybe he had to because of where the story went with Newell being the that's more likely, you know, yeah, w- w- with the killer. Because if you recall in the film, it's uh, Joyce who kind of figures out what's going on with Buzz, right? And and mm-hmm. when they're mm-hmm. when they're in um, Eddie's office with, regarding the mm-hmm. the plant and everything like that, so. Yeah. Maybe that was written in there just so that they could reinforce that new plot line. And I'm curious to see what her dynamic would have been with Johnny once they get to the reveal that it was Buzz in the end, right? Like, I'm, I'm just really curious mm. to see what could have been. And that's really what this what movie feels like is yeah. what could have been. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. kind of how well, I look what, at it. Um, what was your mark? My mark was three out of five. Okay. I found that like Harwood and I, I found like, yeah, Howard De Silva and Bendix, like uh, they took me over the top. Like I, I, I really enjoyed them. So not over the top per se, but a little bit of a boil, you know, a little bit of a mm-hmm. boil up mm-hmm. on the surface, mm-hmm. some bubbles moving. A boil up. So I'll give it a three and a, I'll give it a three and a five to this particular okay. stew. Um, and I found that Ladd was actually best when he was with that dynamic of George and Buzz. Like when, yes. it, when those three characters were together, I bought their camaraderie and their scenes were very strong together. Mm-hmm. And I want and you kind of want more of it, even in your teeth at the very beginning in that great scene in the bar, right? With the veteran and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, uh, but. Well, you get, you that get doesn't the friendship. Come the friendship comes through. Yeah. And going back to Helen, uh, Doris Dowling, like the role that she has, you, you, you got to be a brave actor to tackle that kind of writing. And at the party, she's so over the top. Like, I totally agree with you. I found yeah. afterwards when she's very biting and acidic, when she talks about the, uh, you know, how the son died and everything, like, I found that she was, there. you felt the sarcasm and the anger and the self-loathing, for sure. That she's, You definitely feel that she's a lost soul. And she actually had a really good scene with Bendix in the bar. That was Initial a good histrionics scene. where you're introduced to her, that it just feels yeah. like they're bouncing back and forth. Like, is it is the fault of the actress or is it the fault of, of Marshall, know. you know, directing her? Like, maybe I want some more of this or I want some more of this, but do more of this. And then I guess when they when they had the final reels, they just had to 
put it together and that's what they got. I, I don't know. It just feels but a bit sloppy, again, man. Three out of it just five. feels a bit sloppy to me. Um, sure. I'll, I'll, I know you're, uh, you're, you're wanting to wrap up here, so I'll give you my mark for atmosphere. Um, and then yeah. I'll let you know what I thought. Like, First of all, I just put, put this out on the record, buddy, that I like what you're doing with this little side series. And I'm glad that you are not choosing, you know, just the premier noir films. I'm I'm really pleased that we're reviewing this film because it is in the noir cat- catalog, but it's not one, I think, which is a particularly great addition. So I think it's really cool that we're looking at films that, you know, are maybe lesser known or lesser celebrated uh, because we get to talk about why that is. And so it's it's nice to see. But the atmosphere for this film, to me, was kind of just drab. Like, there was no discernible mm-hmm. style or panache to the photography. I didn't think that there were any filters that were used. Lighting didn't strike the noir feel for me in any of those sort mm-hmm. of you know, high contrast, angular ways, the shadows. I, I, I don't think I could tell you of, the, of a scene where shadows were used deliberately or thematically, where, yeah, we had rain, yeah, we had darkness, yeah, we had guns, yeah, we had trench coats. But those are all things that are just kind of cliche staples of, of the genre. Um, as a noir, I felt, as a noir, it's pretty forgettable. Mm. It's pretty forgettable. Like, this does not have a hall, Hallmark style to it at all. I just felt like it was almost a drama put to film, which someone called a noir yes. because it had a pretty dame and it had a couple of darkened guys and a crook who was a red herring, but then he turned out not to be. So I think, although it's a low mark for me, because the atmosphere for me as a noir, I just went for a two and a half. It, it was passable as a film, but I, yes. I credit you I credit you for adding it to the uh, to the series because it's a different sort of look at you know how this uh, genre of film evolved so i think it's cool yeah that's definitely why i chose it uh, not just because of the chandler background but also because one of the th- elements of noir that is not talked about is you know you're going to you mentioned barbara stanwyck and we're talking about double indemnity for example mm-hmm. it's james and kane's influence on in film noir as mm-hmm. well the idea mm-hmm. of the the darkness that lies in suburbia in the everyday man not just in detectives yeah. and police corruption you know and i think mm-hmm. this story what showed like a, it was the idea of the melodrama chandler was really writing a melodrama here and I think he could have turned into a point in story about, you know, how our veterans deal with mental illnesses and violence and, and trauma and stuff. But that never happened. So that's not the film that we got. So we can't review it on that basis. So what we got was something that was leading to something somewhat interesting, possibly, and then just ended up kind of uh, just kind of fizzled out as being your typical factory made noir that they were already making around this time. Right. Um, yeah, totally. it's kind of a mix of noir totally. and melodrama. Yeah. Because because yes. of the, the the mixture and genre, I think it's important that you are you're tipping your hat to it. Because any anybody can sit down and look at oh here's all the most popular film noirs. I'm just going to do a little fanboy series, you know. But you're not. That's not what you're doing. And I, I like that. I think it's it's a little something different, you know. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you. Moving forward, I gave the atmosphere uh, a passing grade of two and a half as well. Like, the noir aesthetics, they were there. Like, you saw some low-key lighting. Yeah, okay. You, you mentioned the rain sloth streets. Uh, there were some interesting shots I found when they were showing this, the Sunset Strip. And, like, I guess it must have been the exterior of the Blue Dahlia on, mm-hmm. on the Strip and how the rain was showing on the road and everything like that. Like, I really thought there was yeah. some good cinematography there and there was some good lighting. But then you get to, like, the apartments and everything is lit in a different kind of way where you're not mm-hmm. feeling the shadow or, or really the murkiness or the ambiguity of the story at all. Like it's very, 
it's the lighting is very like it's not low key at all in those particular scenes where you want to use shadow for you know atmosphere and uh, realistically as well like we can we can kind of retcon and rebuild these worlds for us with like 4k high definition but that's not how the cinemas saw them that's not how they were released to the public. And so I think that's almost a bit of a cheat if you can go back and say, oh, well, here's what the director intended to be captured on film, because that's not necessarily what was presented yes. to the audience, even if that's what the actors saw, or if that's what the kind of milieu was, or, or the mise-en-scene, you know? So I think it's it's tricky here to yeah. um, to kind of go back and, and recondition and repurpose these films for modern uh, home viewing, because it does kind of change a bit what yeah, the audience saw, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a tangle, yeah. It does, and the camera work too, as as you mentioned, it's it's very. I found it very rudimentary. Like, it almost felt like it was a pre nineteen forties sound film, almost like mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of those Warner Brother gangster dramas, you know, where they yeah. have like yeah. the wide shots and stuff like that. Like Marshall must have worked in that period or something. I, you know, I, I talk about Marshall a little bit, and so he was one of those guys that just wanted. To, he churned them out. He was one of those guys that they got to churn out movies, you know, so they could. Mm-hmm do their quotas, right? And they wanted to get this film done too because they needed Lad, as I mentioned before, he got it yeah. inducted again back into the war. So there's a feeling of being of everything being rushed and kind of basic here. There's almost mm-hmm. like a, a cheapness to, to some to some of the Yeah, of the, that's of a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Now like this because the set design is very bare bones. Like even like the Blue Dahlia restaurant and Eddie and Leo's office, like those were mm-hmm. probably the main set pieces that were somewhat interesting um, and kind of stylish for the time. But but themselves beyond that very though, like you have like, like the apart whitewashed, yeah. The abandoned house to me was the most noir feeling setting of the entire film, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe the dark rain slosh streets. Um, I did like that ske- that skeezy apartment that Johnny ends up into, like that uh, hotel. That whole little element was very mm-hmm. Chandlerian in its own little vignette yeah. way about Corelli. those two guys yeah, bringing... Corelli, yeah. Corelli, yeah. Yeah. Th- that just felt like it could have come right out of a Marlowe story, you know what I mean? Uh, well, it did. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, it did. As for the music, like... I guess it, su- it was sufficient, but it's not memorable. What? Was it? And the main I can't theme, tell you anything about it. I, I I know the main theme, yeah, yeah but the the rest yeah. of it, nah, that's just you're just fishing well, for tra- points here now. There, I think. there was, yeah. it, it was minimal, minimal. So I gave it a passing grade of two and a half. Like what we saw was good. What we what we saw was you know it was sufficient, but it wasn't anything remarkable, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that it's a, a original screenplay by Raymond Chandler. But you can see that the studio wasn't interested in making that anymore. Yes. They were interested in cranking out a film as soon as they possibly could and to get some yeah, money from absolutely. it. Absolutely. The context you shared did a good job of demonstrating that point as well, that the studio wasn't as interested in the creative project as Chandler may have been at the start, you know. So anyway, look, pal, this was fun for me. I thank you for uh, taking me on the journey with you. I'm looking forward to yeah. sitting back and listening You're to welcome. what you do with, with your next episode. It'll be, uh, it'll be good. Yeah, thanks for stopping by, Scott. I really appreciate uh, your views on this film. Mm. And uh, I think we're kind of in the same wavelength with, with, with this one. 
just to state though, like it's an entertaining film. It's 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 fun it to is. go back and watch these movies and see how they were made, and and uh, you know, and also see like we see we, there's so much of the idea of a canon that we see these days of what films to watch mm-hmm. or classic films to watch, right? So we watch like a Hitchcock or we watch like a Howard Hawks or a, a John Huston film, for example, and we know they're eloquently made. We know that there's mm-hmm. a precision in, in how they're created, but then sure. it's, it's good. Yeah. It's good once in a while to see sort of like almost a a B film in a way. Mm-hmm. And how some of these pr- these production houses that crank them out so well, how sometimes they can have some a, a little bit of defects c- coming out mm-hmm. the assembly yep. line. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's also good to see that too, and, and realize that there was a lot of films that were like that, and but they still came up with interesting ideas nonetheless. For sure, yeah. man. And yeah, good stuff. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do with the next uh, selection. You're uh, you're creating some cool content here, buddy. So. Uh, I'm going off to read a read a book, and I'll catch you back on the main show sometime soon. Very soon, hopefully. Right. Take care. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Alright, so there you have it. My final score for the Blue Dahlia was 7.5 out of 15. Not going to lie, I was surprised that this was so low, all things considered, because in terms of scoring, this is the lowest grade so far of our series, and I still enjoyed the film. I feel it should be more in the low 60s than a near fail, but as I said in the discussion, it's one of those films you can appreciate for its individual parts than for the completed whole. Now, if you wish to discuss The Blue Dahlia or comment on this episode or our evaluation of the film, you can do so on Instagram at pipes underscore pod, where you can keep up to date on what's going on with Lighting the Pipes and Lighting the Pipes Noir. And if you crave more detective fiction and mystery novel chat, we will be recording our next episode of the main Lighting the Pipes podcast very soon. This time, Scott and I will be finding out why there's a body in the library. That's right, Agatha Christie, Miss Marple, coming your way. So until the next time, I'm Joshua Taylor, signing off.